Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. John, we have a great show lined up for today. You know, we're going to start off talking about, um, is your spending out of control? Yeah, it's interesting topic. It's an important topic, you know, because there are a lot of people that are struggling with their finances, struggling with their budgeting, their cash flow, and hard to pinpoint the problem. A lot of times, though, the problem is in the mirror. That's it's right. your spending. As Dave Ramsey says, the problem is you're looking at it. Exactly. So important topic. Yeah, and we're going to follow that up with um, a discussion on 401k loans. Steve, we you know, we see, and I see this pretty frequently, I'm sure you do as well, but people taking money out of their 401k loan, uh, 401ks, and they think it's a good deal because they're paying themselves the interest back. So we're going to, we're going to bust that myth and kind of go into some details on why you should stay away. There's a different way that you can handle if you need some money for whatever kitchens or whatever you need. There's a different way to do it that'll help you out long term. So we're going to dive into some, some numbers. Yeah, like that's numbers. A, it's a really important topic because a lot of people fall into that trap. By the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro with over 22 years experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis, also a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro. I have uh, 25 years of experience in helping corporations and individuals with planning. Also have an MBA in finance. Yeah, we're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday afternoon. Yeah, go check out our website, moneymd.net. We have the link to the podcast on there. A lot of good videos as well. Try to do some educational uh, topics out there on long-term care and um, different uh, financial topics that we uh, we thought we would put ourselves on video versus just the show. Go to Facebook as well. We have a good Facebook page. We put a video out there every week of the prescription of the week, and we try to have some fun with it as well. So pretty Absolutely. fun. One. And we have a Twitter account. We do, don't we? We do. We're we we are all over the place are, out there. We're doing so social media. No problem. You can find us. Just look for us. But moneymd.net is a good place to start. We'd also love to have your questions. So you can email us directly at info at moneymd.net. Or you can link to us right off the website. We're going to start off here, John, with the financial fact of the week. And this actually comes from the Census Bureau. And, and Steve, you know, we hear about um, baby boomers, you know, being just such a large group of uh, right. folks. They were born between 1946 and uh, 1964. So that would put them between 53 and 71 now. And, you know, we see it. We see a lot of people retiring. It's estimated 10,000 per day are retiring. But, you know, there's a bigger group out there. Is there? Yes, the millennial group is a larger group. So 83 million, million. Wow. Larger, right? Num- number of people, 83 uh, millennial 83 million millennials versus 75 million uh, baby boomers. Now millennials were born between 1981 and 1997. So just interesting. I don't know. I, when I looked at that, you know, the baby boomers always been talked about the the large mass going through, you know, the systems if you will, so security and Medicare, but the millennials are even bigger than that. Yeah, and it's interesting because you look at the 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 age uh, gap here that includes millennials versus baby boomers. There's actually 17 years of millennials and 18 years of baby boomers. Yet the millennials are still more than the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's really good for an economy too because you know we need growth in population to replace the the retirees to to grow the economy to continue to expand the workplace. 
And uh, it's happening with it the millennials is. out there. That's where the future is. And I think that the challenge from a technology standpoint and from a business standpoint is you have a large group of people that are coming through that you have to cater to. It's different than the baby boomer generation. Exactly. So. Exactly. Makes me wish I was a millennial. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not. You play golf like a millennial. You're, you're pretty I, good I hear at you. golf. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> right. It doesn't feel that way when I get out of bed every morning. There you go. But uh, very interesting information that leads us up here to our first topic and that is is your spending out of control um you know interesting question this is an article from motley fool very recently uh daniel klein and based on that and along with some other information but you know john nearly eight out of ten american workers including ten percent of those who make over a hundred thousand dollars a year they live paycheck to paycheck, according to a recent report from Career Builder. Wow. Um, That's a lot. It's a lot. It's 80%, say, you know, saying they, they live paycheck to paycheck. It's amazing. It means only 20% are actually kind of getting ahead. You know, in addition, almost 75% of workers say they're in debt today, with more than half saying that they never expect to be debt free. Hmm. It's hard to believe half think that they'll the never, right. never get out of debt. It's just, you know, lifestyle. And that's that's uh, that's a problem. You know, that's part of the problem is the the attitude. Yeah, I mean, those are bleak statistics, you know, and they're, and they're caused in some cases by people simply not earning enough money to cover their basic needs. You know, you can't save or dig yourself out of debt if you don't have enough to cover, you know, basic food, shelter, and other necessities. <clears throat> However, though, in some cases... People are not making good financial decisions. They're making terrible financial decisions. In fact, a new report from creditloan.com shows that nearly one in four people know that their spending is out of control, at least some of the time. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, there's a positive note on this. The survey of 1,000 employed Americans showed that about 52% of the respondents feel that they spend their paycheck responsibly often, um, while 25% said always, and only 1% said they never spend their paycheck um, responsibly, Why 4% said not often, um, 18% answered sometimes. So wide, wide variety here. That's 75% of Americans who at least occasionally know that they're making a poor decision as how they spend their paycheck but they do it anyway. So it's something that and we'll get into some reasons here in a couple of minutes. But, you know, when one does opt to make an irresponsible purchase, a lot of times it's not small. I mean, it's not an insignificant, you know, latte at, at Starbucks. No, these are big numbers. And that this was an interesting statistic they pointed out. They said women reported that their average irresponsible purchase cost about $1,273, so almost $1,300 while men beat that and spend almost fifteen, about fifteen hundred dollars yeah. on their frivolous stuff. expense yeah. stuff, I mean that's a wild number fifteen hundred dollars. Wow, man! I mean, what are you buying out there? New sets of golf clubs every month or something? I TVs, mean, you know. I yeah. mean, the latest gadgets. Well, that's right. And those numbers, you know, they did say that they include about ten percent of the total who bought a TV with an average price of two thousand dollars. Oh goodness. That's a pretty nice TV, as well as six and a half percent committing to a trip, sixteen hundred and thirty-one dollar trip. Wow, that that sounds like my weakness. <laughs> and then there's another four point one percent who spent an average of nineteen thousand dollars on a car that they knew they could not afford. So not only did they buy a car, but it's one that they they didn't have enough money for. 
Of course, not every irresponsible spending choice is a major one. There's clothing, which was 6.2%. That was the most popular irresponsible purchase. And there's dining out, it's about 6%. You know, that was fifth. <clears throat> so, you know, it's a whole plethora of spending choices that, that people make. But uh, the big purchases, TVs and things like that, yeah, the, gal, the guys are blowing it away with with those big purchases like that. So why are people making these bad choices? You know, well, sometimes um, <clears throat> you can't afford or you're spending money that you, you know, you need for rent or utility bills. Um, but yet, you know, it's something that 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 commonly happens. I mean, people um, are buying something they can't afford, mm-hmm. even though, you know, it's it's something that <clears throat> makes them feel good. Probably makes them feel good. Exactly. Um, CreditLoan.com reports that some they showed that some insight as to why people make these irresponsible spending choices. The top answer shows that many people are partaking in these bad choices um, because they feel like they deserve to be irresponsible. <laughs> they deserve the. <laughs> they deserve it. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. The top choice was to have fun or improve your mood. That was 15%. Impulsiveness was about 10%. An urge to stop, to, to shop or spend just the spending urge that was 10%. Living beyond your means, 9.6%. To enjoy dining out or food. There's a lot of foodies out there. Mm-hmm. That's 9%. Um, and then to reward yourself was about 8%. So, uh, you know, it kind of comes down to it's just a disregard of the future. Yeah. It's just focusing I, on the present, you know. And I can, I can tell you from experience, you know, in talking to people and just personally, I mean, this stuff doesn't make you happy. No, it's no. not going to solve whatever problem you're trying to fix by buying a new TV. It is nice to have a nice. Yeah, new I mean, TV, it feels good short term, but then then it comes home to roost. Absolutely, I mean, workers are clearly making bad decisions um, knowingly in order to have that in the moment gratification, and that's really easy to understand. We've got a you know go go economy now, um, but a lot of as you mentioned earlier, Steve, half the workers expect never to be debt free, so it's kind of a way of life. Spending money you don't have um, or can't afford. Um, to spend makes it even less likely that you'll ever get to the point where your budget will loosen up because you'll have all those payments going out. So irresponsible spending is either paid for by not having the necessities, um, which is certainly a situation that's not sustainable, or borrowing um, to cover the shortfalls on high-interest credit cards. We see payday loans out there, which those things are hard to get out of. It's kind of a vicious cycle. Yeah, that's right. You know, not eating or having a roof over your head is obviously not a viable long-term option for anybody. So, you know, borrowing only makes sense, though, if it's a short-term, um, if the sh- if the shortfall is going to be temporary, mm-hmm. if it's going to be short-term. You know, if you're about to get a raise or otherwise increase your income significantly, then adding short-term debt may be understandable to kind of bridge a gap. But that's not the case for most people. You know, I mean, being irresponsible, it may feel good in the moment, but it's going to make it harder and even harder down the road to get above water. So by being disciplined and foregoing short-term pleasures, you can increase your chances of having the long-term stability and financial success that we all strive for. So how can you improve your spending decisions? Mm. Well, here are some ways... Here are some answers, yep, for increasing and improving your decisions here. First one is create a plan. You know, prioritize your spending based on what's important to you. I mean, once you determine your goals, perhaps getting out of debt or going on a vacation, then put that 
on top of, at the top of your budget, you know, after giving and food, shelter, utilities, clothing, transportation, and the needs like that, of course, mm-hmm. um, you know, put that on top and, you know, see that you're planning a family getaway to a cabin. Um, you know, if you can see it, it makes it easier to avoid cutting into your savings um, by the way of your daily cappuccino run. Mm-hmm. So maybe put a picture on your refrigerator or on your computer desktop, you know, seeing a picture of your goal, I think makes sure, a big difference. So that was number one. Second one here is research before you shop. You know, if you're in the market to buy a big ticket item, such as a TV or a washer or dryer, you know, don't, don't point to a commercial and say, I want that one and just go out and get it. Obviously do some research, compare prices, have patience, you know, um, go look before you buy. I mean, you may figure out after a while and you don't really need it. So delaying, I think, is a really powerful tool. And then use some of the great apps that are out there for getting the best price. Yeah, that's a good one, Steve. I like that. Um, and also, you know, avoid your spending triggers. you got to recognize that these are out there. I mean, we all have those places or people that want to make us spend a little too much. Maybe it's the, the sweet smell of a bakery right around the corner. Or maybe it's a friend that tells you how great that purse looks <laughs> with your shoes in your closet. Shoes, multiple, mm, right? Yeah, plural. Yes, the, goodness. The Shoes are expensive. And, um, you know, limit your contact with those triggers so you can learn um, to spend in line with what you planned. Maybe it's as simple as trying a different route so you don't pass the bakery, or maybe you aren't lured by the scent of the, the fresh baked goods. I mean, you know, you got to be very careful. You can still have fun with your money, but when it's over, you know, it's still your money and you've got to tell it where to go. I think that number number one, creating a plan is key. Yeah, it really is. That's a good one. The next one here is find an accountability partner. And, you know, for married couples, that probably should be your husband or your wife. Um, for singles, um, you know, your accountability partner could be a trusted family member or a responsible friend. Um, but make sure it's somebody responsible. That's not going to drag you into, <laughs> right. you know, <laughs> encourage you to make bad decisions. Um, but discuss your money goals with that person. Then talk to them before you make big purchases. You know, they'll be able to remind you what you're what you're working toward. They'll be able to point you back toward your goal and say, you know, does that really support your long-term goal here? You know, the teamwork factor is super important. If you if you get a goofy smile on your face when you see your neighbor pull up in a new car, you know, your accountability partner, accountability partner may remind you to focus on your current money goal. You know, your new car will come later. So that was number four. Next one here is don't shop while you wait. (laughs) Um, A 2012 Google study finds that 28% of people use their mobile device to shop while they're waiting in line. You know, imagine that. You're like in a line to buy something and you're like, you're like shopping on your phone at the same time. They make it easy. They do. They make it too easy. One click. You got to be careful. You'll buy stuff you, you with by accident. You know, on, on uh, Amazon. Yeah, it's tempting to browse Amazon or Ann Taylor while you're sitting in the car line at school or in the waiting room of the doctor's office. But those small windows of time can open up the door to serious spending that can affect your baby step process. And they can be impulsive buys, too, because those are short periods of time. You're not doing the proper research and, and, you know, having patience if you shop during those periods. So if you know you're going to be waiting in line, keep a book or a magazine in your car, you know, or a podcast like The Money Doctor. That's right. Listen right? to us. Listen to us <laughs> and stop shopping while you're in line. Yeah, the next one here, Steve, is develop patience. I mean, this is a great uh, topic here to talk about. You know, if you ever ever had buying fever – 
you know, you get so excited about buying something without checking to see if you can afford it. You got to wait. Just take 24 hours to do the trick. Don't don't worry. It's going to be there. Salespeople are going to tell you it's not going to be there, but that's not the case um, most of the time. So just wait. You typically wake up the next day. Maybe you have a little less excitement over the purchase, which can help you make more rational buying decisions. So it's a great, um, great suggestion. Wait 24 hours. Exactly, exactly. And the last one here is look for savings before you buy. And I think this accomplishes more than just just saving money on the purchase. It also makes you focus on the price and it makes you think about it more. If you're looking for savings, looking for coupons, you know, you start focusing on how much does this cost? Do I really need it? And that's really important. So if you regularly shop at a store, then you probably know that, you know, there are times when you can get the best deals. Check out the supermarkets weekly sales ads so you can stock up on you know for sell items that you love you know keep an eye on your favorite clothing store um, so you can buy out of season coat shirts shorts you know on clearance sign up for store emails updates and you know check online coupons before you purchase you know a little little work ahead of time um, goes a long way but it's also going to make you focus on the price and whether you really need it rather than making an impulse purchase. So look for savings before you buy. I think Dave Ramsey would like that article. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. All right, and that leads us up here to our question of the week. This question has to do with drawing money from an IRA, and the question is, is how many days do I have to put it back without paying taxes or penalties? So let's say you pull money out of an IRA or – um, and you you go and you know use it or you don't use it, the IRS gives you 60 days to put it back in without having uh, to worry with taxes. So I'm working with a client now that um, that is in that situation. We're trying to get the money back in before that 60-day window. So there's really no excuses. They won't let you. Um, if it's 61 days, then you're going to be paying taxes. That's on it. it. It's an IRS rule. It's not based on the custodian. There's no loan provisions mm-hmm. like there are in a 401k plan that we're getting ready to talk about. So, uh, you know, if you take money out of an IRA, you only got that 60-day window uh, and so there's not a lot of options there. You really want to avoid that process because you can get stuck. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen people do that for a house, pull money out thinking they're going to sell theirs or close on theirs and something happened on the closing for their house. They're trying to sell and they can't get the money back in. And you know, it's penalty time. It is what it you is. Know? It is what it is. Yep. So you don't want to fall into that trap. Be very careful about taking 60 day rollovers out of your IRA. So that's a good question. All right. And that leads us up here to the four reasons to avoid 401k loans. Yeah, this is uh, from a gentleman named Jason Hole. Pretty pretty good article here. We're going to get into some details. But, Steve, we see a lot of people that maybe are, are in, a, in a kitchen from the heydays back in the, the 70s. And, you know, they need to get uh, new appliances and wallpaper and cabinets. And, you know, you start talking to some of your contractor friends and you see some of the fancy things that are going into other people's kitchens and you're like, Hey, I, I want to do that. It's going to be twenty, thirty thousand $30,000. Um, it's an investment, right? You're going to put some money back into your house and at least you rationalize that to yourself, right? Cause yeah, most of the right. time you don't get that money back when you sell it. Um, and then you come up with a cost estimate of let's say 20,000 and then you realize you really don't have 20,000 just lying around, right? True. It's not just yeah, sitting no. there. So uh, yeah, otherwise you wouldn't be looking for a loan. That's right. But you do have a hundred thousand dollars in a 401k and the 401k loan rules from your employer allow you to take that loan. And, um, you have to pay yourself back the interest, but isn't that a good deal? 
Yeah, sweet. Right? Problem solved. No problem. No Just problem. pull it out. Just so. pull it out of that loan and, you know, you get it back in there automatically. You don't even feel it. And well, all gonna, a good deal, right? We're going to have to break up that, that myth here. We're going to bust the, it. Hey, and the interest comes back to you, John. I mean, yeah, what could yourself. possibly be wrong with that? Come on. Well, we're going to look at four reasons why you shouldn't do it, and we're going to tell you a better way at the end. So the number one reason is, is you're converting some pre-tax dollars into after-tax, and I'm going to let you kind of explain yeah. that piece of it. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's really in the form of interest. But, you know, when you put money into your 401k, you know, that money comes out of pre-tax dollars. And um, so you get a deduction for it, you know, and your contribution to your 401k reduces your taxable income in that year that you make the contribution. You know, once you withdraw the money from from the plan in the form of a loan, you're going to have to repay that money with after-tax dollars, namely you know, the ones that arrive at your bank via your paycheck. And they've already been taxed. They've already been taxed. Yep. So you're putting after-tax money, you know, back toward the loan. Um, now, you know, there are some misconceptions about the taxation of 401k loans that need to be cleared up. I mean, you aren't converting the principal into after-tax dollars. Um, you know, you just spent, you know, $20,000 of pre-tax money that you got out of your 401k but it came to you without taxes. You have to put it back in without after taxes. Um, so it's kind of a wash there, but where you really are converting dollars is in the interest you pay back. Right. You're taking after tax interest and putting it back in your 401k where you don't get no tax deduction. Yeah. And when you pull it back out in the future, you're going to have to pay taxes on it. Exactly. So, exactly. And that leads us up to reason number two. Yeah. You're, you're being taxed twice on your 401k loan interest. And this is really important. You're taxed once on the money that you earned in, in order to pay back the loan in the first place. And when you withdraw your funds from your 401k in retirement, those withdrawals are taxed at ordinary income rates as opposed to the capital gains or the dividend income tax rate. So, you know, thus you're, you're taxed when you're putting the interest payment into your 401k and you're taxed again when you pull it out. So that's the, the exactly. double taxation. Double taxation. Yeah. So, you know, the, the going interest rate, you know, today is, you know, between four and 5%. Um, and so if you borrow the $20,000 to make those spiffy, you know, adjustments to your kitchen, um, you have five years to pay that back. Your payments would be about three hundred and seventy-two dollars, but you would have to earn four hundred ninety-seven in order to get that three hundred and seventy-two going back in. Yeah. So you're paying it back with after-tax dollars, and then when you pull it out, you're going to pay it again. Yeah, Uncle Sam loves that. Oh yeah, they love you doing those loans. I mean, that's great. You're just doubling up on your taxes on that interest. It's a good deal for Uncle Sam. Sweet deal. Not so much for the individual. And and that goes in reason number three. I mean, you know, everybody is going to leave their job at some point. Yes, you are. And if you default on that 401k loan, then you're going to be looking at a pretty hefty tax bill. And, you know, you don't always, you're not always in control when you leave your job, right? You know, you think you have those five years to pay back that money that you took the loan for. But sometimes, you know, things change and you leave your job and the five years is not up. So if you keep that fight, you keep that loan going on your 401k plan like a lot of people do, eventually you're probably going to change jobs unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. And when you do, you know, there comes the the bill to repay that loan, right? Your 401k loan is going to have terms for catching up on a missed payment. So that's called the cure period. If you miss payments beyond the cure period, though, it's going to be considered in default. And once you're in default for that 401k loan, 
then the Internal Revenue Service, IRS, they're going to consider that loan balance as income. You're going to have to pay taxes at your ordinary income tax rate. But in addition, if you're under 59 and a half, um, most likely the loans are going to be considered an early distribution. And you have to pay a 10% penalty on the balance. So, you know, I mean, here's hoping that you didn't plow all of that $20,000 into your kitchen because it could be painful. You know, 22% mm-hmm. maybe ordinary income tax plus another 10% penalty plus maybe 7% for state tax. Yeah, it's That's 40%. 40% right there. <clears throat> so in your $20,000 loan that you took, you're going to pay $8,000 to default on that loan in taxes Unless you have that in your hip pocket, which I suspect you don't because right. you had to take a loan for it, right? That's right. Then where are you going to get that money? It's going to come from, I don't know, a credit card or something. Yeah, it's not a good situation. And reason number four here is, you know, when you leave your employer, it doesn't matter why you left. You know, maybe you were um, left on your own accord or got another job. Maybe you uh, were fired. Maybe the company went belly up. The IRS doesn't care. Like we said earlier, you have to get that money paid back within 60 days. Otherwise, it's going to be defaulted and you're going to have to pay the taxes like you just described. So let's look what happens if you decide um, to save um, versus using a 401k loan. Which one would be better? And we're going to go through some details. The assumption here, Steve, is that you're saving 15%. So that's kind of what Dave Ramsey talks about. and right. we, We're believers in the 15% rule. Let's say that you only saved about 6%. And the other 9% you saved in an after-tax account. And so the question is, is what would that look like um, if you didn't do the loan and instead you saved? How many months would it take for you to save up that money and how much better off would you be? Yeah, that's a great question. Exactly. And so the que- the answer, though, is um, basically you'd be putting $562 a month mm-hmm. into a savings account, um, after-tax savings account, and it would take 32 months. For you to save up that twenty thousand dollars you needed, you'd have twenty thousand five forty, um, and so hello granite countertops. Yeah, no, that you're does there. that does assume that you're investing that in a in in the market, so you're making yeah. some return associated with it. But thirty two months, um, and you you're going to be better off by seven thousand dollars after five years. Yeah, so it's yeah. a better deal if you can wait just you know two and a half years, you'll change your net worth. By seven thousand dollars, and after twenty years, Steve, that would rise to thirty thousand dollar improvement. So exactly. these aren't insignificant numbers. No, they aren't. I mean, the difference is always more than people imagine. You know, by just having the patience. Same thing with buying a car. You know, have the patience, pay cash for it, save the money up, get interest and returns <clears throat> working in your favor rather than against you. And, you know, you're going to be better off financially. And that, that's what happens over time. I think it's tempting when you can easily access that money and you pay yourself the interest back. It sounds like a good deal, but financially it's not. And if you can wait for a couple of years, and for a lot of people that's hard to do, but, you know, if you can plan and save up, then it financially it's going to come out better for you. It is. And it just kind of goes back to the old adage of doing some planning and, and you know, budgeting preparing for the future, getting ahead, and staying ahead. You know, once you get ahead, it kind of snowballs, and you're able to stay ahead, and then you have money working for you rather than against you. So we're in the the situation. We have a 15-year-old house. Our windows we initially purchased from Home Depot, and uh, they weren't the top-quality windows when we bought right. them 15 years ago. So we're having to replace them, and we got some estimates, and 
uh, did a lot of research on, and we've been planning and saving up. And some of the estimates were $30,000 to replace the windows. And I was like, Tammy, we're not spending $30,000. I can see out of them pretty good. There are some that, that need to be addressed, but we found someone that's going to do it for about 5,000 and just, they're just going to replace the glass, the okay. paint. So they're not going to rip the windows out. We're still going to have vinyl windows, but, um, you know, we had been planning on that for a while. So, um, you know, if you can do some research on it and, and maybe there's some alternatives instead of spending 20 on a kitchen, maybe you can spend 10 and fund it in, in a year and a half versus, you know, two and a half years. So there you go. Do some planning, yeah. do some planning, some research. That's a great option. All right. And, and uh, that brings us up to our last item of the day, and that is the prescription of the week. Yeah, we've talked about this before, but I thought it was relevant to kind of go through this again. There's an old adage in our industry that says time in the market is more important than timing the market. So yes. we saw last week um, there were record trading. We saw that with the, um, a lot of the wirehouses and brokerage firms couldn't keep up with all the people trading. So they're trying to time the market. And Steve, that's just not the right way to do it. I mean, if you can stay invested, be properly diversified and have a plan, historically, that's been a great solution. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you're out there trying to trade and trying to kind of outguess the market, you know, there's no way you're going to beat those computer programs that are like the Flash Boys, if you remember that, (laughs) you know, that are trading in a milliseconds. You know, and so, I mean, bottom line is you're going to make mistakes. You're you're going to you're following your emotions. You're going to end up, you know, selling at a lower price than 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 what you bought in at or, you know, buying in at a higher price mm-hmm. than what you sold at. Um, you're going to hurt yourself, you know, and the great news is you don't have to do that. You don't have to be that smart. You don't have to outguess the market. The market over time has proven throughout history that. You know, you can be successful by just diversifying, riding out these ups and downs, not worrying about them and planning for the long term. And, you know, even if you only have five years, you can invest appropriately at the right risk level and you can take advantage of the growth that the market gives over that time. Yeah. And it's not just the five years before retirement. It's in the 25 years you have to plan on after the retirement. So exactly. But the key is, is to plan and, and don't try to time the market. That That is not a valid strategy. It's a losing strategy. It is. So good prescription of the week. Okay. And that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us out on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at moneymd.net. You can give us a call. Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor.